I recently did an online conference for the ministry, Women's Bible Study, and Lisa Lejour had asked me to come on and talk about three topics, uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Catholicism. So this is one of those videos. If you'd like to see all three, you could just wait you know, on my channel. It'll eventually be updated, and I will have more details about her ministry and links to that ministry if you'd like to check it out in the video description. So thank you to Lisa for letting me upload this content on my channel as well. I hope that you find this very beneficial. Um, all right, so we'll just say welcome to our Contending for the Faith Conference. How's that? Uh, we are with uh, Mike Winger, Pastor Mike Winger. Uh, this particular conference was supposed to be a live conference in Phoenix, and it was going to be six hours in one day, which I'm pretty certain Mike is super excited that that never happened. <laughs> because after two hours a couple days ago with the Jehovah Witness section, we were like dying. So I think I would have uh, lost my voice. I'm, that's my actual biggest concern is that, that six hours of talking, I just would have lost my voice halfway through. Yeah, it, but it, it's, it's hard to do those. But um, so we, we ended up making this instead of live in Phoenix, we made this a webinar conference because of the coronavirus. We can't get into the building and all that stuff. So here's what's happening. If you don't know, we're doing a six hour uh, conference contending for the faith, as you can see behind me. We're going to talk about three different religions. We've already spoken about the Jehovah Witness religion. Uh, we're talking today about Mormonism, and then in June, we're going to be talking about June 2020. So, like I was, it's always weird when you put dates, because it's like, um, if you watch it after, then yeah. you're, it's all confusing. But anyway, June, June 2020, we'll do Catholicism, and that'll be kind of good. So, if you're joining for the first time, we're super happy you're with us. My name is Lisa Leisure. I teach a women's Bible study in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, our goal is to put up uh, two lessons a week. That's kind of what our plan usually is. And then a few times we have guest speakers. And so today we're like super excited to have Pastor Mike Winger with us. Now I'm putting up our website right now. The reason why I put that up there is because we are going to be doing one more segment to this in the end of June. Uh, June I can't remember what it is, June 24th-ish, 5th-ish, something like that. Anyway, if you go to womensbiblestudy.com, if you see that banner, click on that, and then all the information is on there. You can sign up for the Catholic part of this. June 25th, um, yeah. Is it June 25th? Okay, perfect. So uh, th this whole thing will be airing online um, starting in the middle of July. And the reason why we're doing that on our website is because I always say I need to go on vacation. So, so Mike's doing that. But I think we decided we're going to go ahead and have Mike put those up on his YouTube site or whatever that looks like. And he can do the Jehovah Witnesses and this one, whatever. So we'll, we can figure that out. So, uh, so I want to introduce you to Mike. If some of you are new and you don't know him, uh, he's kind of awesome. He is a pastor at uh, Hosanna Christian Fellowship in Bellflower, California. We were just talking about, like, I wanted to know where Bellflower was. So I guess it's, you said Long Beach? Oh, so Bellflower is um, is its own city. And it's, it's in, like, towards South LA County. Um, but I live in Long Beach. But I'm, like, five minutes from Bellflower. So we're, we're right there. Yeah. Which okay. is so, you know, South LA County, uh, near the coast. So weird you don't go to the beach, but okay, that's fine. Yeah, um, <laughs> I go to the beach. Yeah, so he's a rarely. pastor, but his main focus is not really the church or being a pastor there. He, I think he teaches, but his main focus is here is his website right here, mm -hmm. um, Bible Thinker. It's BibleThinker.org. So um, just tell us, a little, for this group of people, like explain sure. what you do because you, <clears throat> you just do so much. Um, well, you know, effectively, my goal is to help people learn to think biblically about everything. And so I do a lot of study and a lot of prep, and I try to invest 
a, just a great deal of time, a great deal of time in the preparation for the content I do, and I address issues. Either it's it's you know passages of scripture, or it's topics that that Christians should care about, or it's even things like atheism or other religions, and I try to deal with it in a more thorough fashion. Uh, what I found is that we have like sort of pop level treatments of topics on one side, and then we have really deep stuff that's hard for people to even understand. And I kind of wanted to be in the middle there. I want it to be deep, but super understandable and right. to take people deep, but without burdening that process too much. So yeah, just tons of teaching online. If, if I have a gift from the Lord, I think it's in teaching, it's in explaining things. Yeah. And, and I just try to make the most of that. So I produce free content online. It's all available there. And, um, and every day, uh, by the grace of God, people send me messages about how it's been impacting their lives. Yeah, it really has. It's so cute because my husband, my husband's like the Proverbs guy, the wisdom guy. Nice. And he, he said after listening to me, he's like, oh my gosh, I like totally understood what he was talking about. So it's, yeah. it, it's really cool. So Good. thank you for that. Good. I would say you're changing the face of YouTube. Uh, if, <laughs> if you didn't watch our Jehovah Witness, you have to go back on and see this first session to tell you what I think Mike is <laughs> so there you go what we decided to <laughs> put that right. on <laughs> so um he has you have like over 128,000 subscribers now on youtube which I, and that's why i say it's changing the face of youtube because people want to hear good bible and so you're teaching for well over an hour and it's kind of and what we're seeing is that people are hungry for for that they want to they really yeah. want to know the truth yeah. So, um, okay, the reason why we're doing this conference is really something that the brother of Jesus said in Jude 3. Here's what the verse is. It says, um, uh, let's see, where is that? There we go. Uh, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So, our thinking is that if it was that important to the brother of Jesus, then it kind of is very important for us yeah. because, and, and like Mike, you and I talked about this, we're not doing this conference because we're trying to bash someone's religion or just be a jerk. Like mm-hmm. we're talking about this because if you get this wrong, eternity is at stake. And I think that's what my passion is. And I think that's your passion. Like we want people to know the right way to get to heaven. So, um, so that's why we're doing this. We have to know what other religions believe so we can compare it to this whole faith once delivered. So that's why we brought Mike in because he's really, really good at that. So, so here's my thought before we get into this is that for most of us, like Mormons show up to our door and what happens is when they do is, is we hear them say the same words. We hear them say, uh, Jesus or God the Father or the Holy Spirit, and then they show you the Bible, and and I think it confuses people because they're like, well, I I think they're Christians because they're saying the same thing, and they're riding their bikes and they really care about me because they it's hot out, you know, and honestly, I have an entire side of my family that are Mormons, nicest people in the entire world, but when it comes down to it, we need to say what the Mormon church teaches looks nothing like this faith once delivered. So that's where we're going with that today. So let's just start with, uh, with the questions. Uh, like I said, for you, those of you that joined a few minutes late Q and a on the bottom, if you have a question, Cheyenne will be monitoring it. And then what happens is at the very end, what questions we, we didn't deal with, we'll try to get to your question. So, so let's start here, Mike, with this whole idea of, um, for us as, as Christians, we would consider Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons 
as a cult. And I don't even mean that like mean, but, but there are reasons for that. And, and tell me, so let's start there. Why, why is Mormonism considered a cult? Okay, well, uh, it, it, as we shared last time with the JW video, it's important to understand that the word cult has many uses, like the word green. It can talk about green thumb or a green plant or someone who's new at something. So the word has different uses. In theological contexts, when you're talking about biblical truth, when we use the word cult, we're generally talking about a group that claims to be coming from Christianity, sometimes claims to be Christian, but it really isn't. And it's not that it isn't because we just disagree on some doctrines. There's actually room for a lot of disagreement on a lot of different things within true Christianity. It's because we disagree on like central core issues, like the very nature of who God is, who Jesus is, um, what the gospel even is, what it means. And so when you have two groups that have, uh, you know, two different definitions of God, Jesus, the gospel, and these things can't be true at the same time. They're, they're mutually exclusive. Well, one of them is authentic Christianity, and the other one would be a cult, or, or it's faking, pretending to be Christian. Now, this doesn't mean that, that Mormons like are aware of this. Obviously, if they're aware of this, they would immediately say, I'm not Mormon anymore. Right. But that, we call it that because it disagrees with Christianity. And, and you know, early on, Mormonism would have said the same thing. They said that all Christian denominations were abominations and that they were all false. And so they effectively said, you're all cults. <laughs> and, right. we're, and we're saying, uh, well, we can show with the Bible what the truth of Christianity is. Um, the, the, that's what we mean when we say like a cult. It's not meant to be a personal insult. It's, it's more of like an analysis of how genuine is your claim to be Christian. Okay, perfect. All right. Tell us how this religion started because, and really yeah. like why it started, because I always say this, and we talked about this in our last session, like we already had this whole body of doctrine, like, and then someone just shows up randomly and says, oh, wait, I have something new. That just throws me. Like, why, mm. why would anyone believe that? So talk on that. Yeah. So it actually started in the early 1800s in America, in the U.S. This is where this religion came from. It's where it began. And it starts and it all comes down, it funnels down to one guy and his name is Joseph Smith Jr. So Joseph Smith in 1820, he, later he claimed, like many years later, he says, hey, back in 1820, I had a vision. I was confused about what denomination to join, and I asked God to show me what was the truth about, about uh, what I should believe. And God came to me, and he told me that all of the creeds or the beliefs of the denominations around me, they were all abominations in the sight of God, that God hates them. So he or he's rejecting traditional Christianity, all of it altogether. Um, and, and, and Mormonism was traditionally very hostile to Christianity originally. Nowadays, and more recently, the past 30, 40 years, they were like, we're Christian too. But it's, that's a shifting of things. In the beginning, it wasn't that way. Um, three years later, supposedly he was 14 when he had this vision. Three years later, he's like 17 now. And God leads him into, uh, into the, a, hill, a hill in New York where he's, he goes up to this hill and he digs and he finds these golden plates. And... He then translates, years, years down the road, he translates these golden plates into what is now called the Book of Mormon. So he says he found these golden plates with like ancient reformed Egyptian written on them. And he did this translating work by the power of the Holy Spirit and brought them what is now the Book of Mormon. This is, this is like probably the key um, text that the Mormons add as scripture. They actually say this is scripture. So let me tell you a little bit about... Um, the context of how this happened back in the day in the 1800s, there was huge interest in native Americans at the time. They were like, what's the history of these people that we didn't really know about before? Um, what, you know, did, has God done a work in their lives in some way? There were even like fabricated works from before the book of Mormon about 
supposedly, you know, God working in the lives of the Native Americans. Well, that's what the Book of Mormon's about. It's about from 600 BC to 385 AD. It's about a thousand year period of time where in, in the early American, you know, history, Jews traveled from, uh, from, you know, the, uh, the European continent. They, they traveled over to the Americas and then they split into two nations, just one family of Jews, but they split into two nations. Jesus visited these people and one of the nations became more godly and the other became more ungodly. Um, the, the bad people, according to the book of Mormon, they became more and more dark skinned. This Joseph Smith was a racist and it's just part of what he, what he put in his religion. They became more and more dark skinned. And then there was a huge battle at one point where all the, the bad people killed off all the good people. And then the modern native Americans are descendants basically of the bad people. That's, that's pretty much in a, in a nutshell, <laughs> that's the story. And that, uh, that at some point in there, Jesus visited actually came to the, during his 40 days after the resurrection, he came to the Americas and he like shared and shared the gospel and communicated with these early Americans. Uh, so Mormonism believes that that book of Mormon is actually the word of God and that Joseph Smith translated these tablets are real. They believe all that stuff. Um, I have a slide for you to show you their faith claim about this. And it's, this is one of their articles of faith It's about what they believe. And it says, we believe the Bible to be the word of God in so far as it is translated correctly. We believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. This is from their Articles of Faith, Article number 8. Now, this is interesting because the way it's worded is very careful. This is a, this is a theological creed they have, and they, they qualify the Bible. The Bible's the Word of God. Well, as long as it's translated right. So, in other words, there's issues. Right. <laughs> but the Book of Mormon, no caveat, because they believe it was translated by the power of the Holy Spirit through Joseph Smith. So, they think they have a perfect representation of it. They, in other words, they test the Bible with Mormon theology. Okay. They'll think that Joseph Smith brings a, res a restoration of new truth and new theology, or I should say old theology brought back, that has been obscured even in the Bible, that has been, that has been messed up by every Christian basically throughout history, and he's bringing it back. They, they call it the restoration of the gospel. Um, now, according to the Bible, you, you really should do it the other way around. Right. So what they do is they, they take the Book of Mormon and they use that and their other scriptures because they have other books too. And they use that to test the Bible to see if it's been maybe altered or changed. They just assume that their stuff's right and the Bible's wrong. But the Bible says it's the other way around, that we should actually test new revelation based on old revelation. Right. So that's interesting that this is this, this at the, at the, uh, the get-go, they've got these things upside down. Isaiah 8.20 actually says this. It says, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn or they don't have light. There, there's no truth there. So you test a current prophet based upon what God has previously revealed. In Deuteronomy 13, we have this as well. It says, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you uh, comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord, your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is a really interesting hypothetical scenario in Deuteronomy. Cause it's like, Hey, a prophet comes, they make a prediction. It comes true. Whoa, there must be a real prophet, right? But if they lead you away from what we see in scripture, what God has revealed, don't even listen to them. This is a deceit. That's a big deal because that means that we taste, we test later revelations, claims of revelation, with God's previous revelation. So the Mormon church gets that backwards. Um, 
And so they're already off on the wrong foot. So what I'm saying here, let me summarize, right? Joseph Smith is the guy on Mormonism. He's the prophet and revelator. That's his term, the term to describe him. He's central and foundational to Mormonism. Mormonism's truth or falsity hangs on the claims of Joseph Smith. And he's made many uh, more prophecies that I haven't talked about. And there's several other scriptures that he wrote out that are now scripture that are now part and, and other people wrote as well that are part of the canon of scripture to Mormons. It's so it's the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and then a gathering of works called the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, you know, I always say this. I would say if, if Mormon, the Mormon church would never have gotten off the ground if people knew their Bible. Like if they really mm -hmm. knew the Bible back then, do you know what I'm saying? So like I, I can't seem to break through to my Mormon cousins. Like even if we, if I said, no, you've got to take the Bible and compare it to the, you know, that's got to be your final authority. Yeah. I, I don't know how to break through there because mm -hmm. it, they, they won't, they won't, they've been taught that that's just not true. So yeah. if you were um, a person that heard Joseph Smith in the 1800s, wouldn't the Bible should like, wouldn't this have been a red flag? Had they known the Bible? Yeah, yeah. Well, some people did. And there was people who really fought against him, um, even aggressively in some cases, and they fought against them. And there was, there was actually battles in Mormon history. Um, but the, the thing is, what, what I've already explained should help you understand maybe your family a little better. They've been taught that the Bible, while it's God's word, it has translation issues. So you can't exactly use the Bible to correct Mormonism, right? Because Mormonism is the, restore, the restored gospel. We have no issues. The Bible does have issues. So you saying, but the Bible disagrees with you to them. Oh, that's a little suspicious. Maybe that's one of those areas where it's translated wrong. That's what they think. But early on, uh, Joseph Smith, here's what should have been the red flags to the initial followers. He had a reputation um, and, and this is documented well and people can look into this. And I encourage Mormons to look into this. Don't take my word for it. I'm not attacking you. I'm not persecuting you. Um, this is about truth and falsity. If Mormonism is true, I want to be a Mormon. If it's false, I don't want you to be one. <laughs> you know? I, want you to, I want you to know the truth. Um, but Joseph Smith had a, had a bad reputation. He was, he was, his reputation is one of a guy who was kind of like a scam artist, you know, he would do fortune telling and things like this. Um, but when, you know, most of the church probably doesn't know that. So we could talk about his teachings. Uh, Joseph Smith taught in poly, taught polytheism. Now, initially he didn't teach it, but as, as the years progressed, he began to teach very heavily poly, polytheism. Oddly enough, the Book of Mormon itself actually uh, doesn't teach polytheism. It teaches monotheism. But his other works, like in the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Abraham, very clearly teaches polytheism. And some of his uh, things I'll share later show where he taught polytheism. So his, his doctrine got progressively more and more unbiblical as things right. went by. So he taught there was millions and even billions of gods. Um, he also teaches salvation by works, that you need to work yourself into exaltation or the highest degree of salvation. And it's easy here. Anyone who says the Bible got it wrong, and says that every Christian has had it wrong from since the, you know right after the Bible was written, they got it wrong. <laughs> like that's that's easy. This is this is a no brainer for Christians. It's it's a wrong gospel. It's a wrong theology of God, and it disagrees with Scripture. So this should be a no brainer. So his teachings would have been a big red flag. Another red flag would be his prophecies. Joseph Smith has numerous prophecies, and several of which are false, are clearly false. I'll give you just one example. In Doctrine and Covenants 84, that's, now this is in scripture to them. Doctrine and Covenants is scripture to the Mormon. Joseph Smith is recorded that he made a prophecy that the city and temple, which would be the center of Mormonism, would be in Missouri and would be founded by Joseph Smith. 
So Joseph is going to found it. It'll be in Missouri. They even laid out the exact plot of land that it would be built on. Well, to this day, that plot of land is, is vacant, like as far as any sort of temple or Mormon building goes. Um, there's a church that's not Mormon that's on, that's on that land and then extended around. It's just grass. So over and over again, leaders of the church hearken back to Joseph Smith's prophecy and they say they're expecting it'll happen. It has to happen within at least 100 years, right? Over and over again, we have quotes from church leaders saying, it'll happen, it'll happen, it'll happen until finally, over 100 years later, one of the church leaders says, I think it's safe to say it's not going to happen now. And I, I think that this is, this is, and it's all documented on LDS.org on like their official website. You can see it there as well. Um, false prophecy means it's not really from God. Like this is, this is easy. This is easy, right? A false prophet, eh, kick him out. Don't, don't fear him. Well, Genesis is another example. Um, this is one of the most inflammatory things I think about Joseph Smith. He has his own translation of the Bible called the Joseph Smith translation. And this is from, you can put it on the screen, that's fine. This is from jo- the, the Joseph Smith translation, Genesis chapter 50, verse 33. And it's a prophecy about who? Joseph Smith. Let me read it to you and then explain why it's problematic. Um, and that seer will, will I bless. And they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded for this promise I give unto you, for I will remember you from generation to generation. And his name shall be called Joseph. And it shall be after the name of his father. Notice he was Joseph Smith Jr. So he's after the name of his father. And he shall be like unto you, for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring many people unto salvation. Now, again, this is in the Joseph Smith translation. Now, if you go and you check your Bible to say, like, how different is it than my Bible? And you open up your Bible and you get to Genesis chapter 50, you're going to find something really shocking. Genesis 50 ends after only 26 verses. Mm. So where's Genesis 50 verse 33 showing up? Like, where is that coming from? Oh, well, maybe it's in the original Hebrew and Joseph Smith, you know, rediscovered it. Nope. He didn't know Hebrew anyway, but there is no Hebrew manuscript that has Genesis 50 verse 33. He literally made up a verse, added it to the Bible and wrote it about himself. Okay. So you tell your, so I tell my Mormon cousin or I tell your Mormon friend or the, why don't they believe that? Like, why are they so, are they just that blinded or what? Um, They don't know these things. Uh, Most Mormons don't know any of this stuff. Right? They, they're, they're just not, they don't talk about it. And when they discover it, they're not really encouraged to talk about it with other Mormons. Um, and Mormonism is based on feelings, not on facts or evidence. And they, they say this over and over again. Let me, let me share a little bit more about this though. Um, LDS.org. This is the current Mormon website, like official church website. Here's what they say. Remember this. I, I quoted from Joseph, Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, where he added verses to the Bible to be, to put himself in, to smuggle himself into scripture. This is what they say. They say, the eighth article of faith, that was the one we read a moment ago, declares that we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. The translation of the Bible by Joseph Smith shows much of what is meant by that statement. So, I mean, it's, this is, Mormonism can't possibly be true. Like this is, it's clearly built upon a a deceit and a lie, not necessarily perpetrated by Mormons. They're the victims of this guy, Joseph Smith. He's a scam artist, right? Let me tell you a little more about him and we'll go to your next question if you like. Um, Joseph Smith also had character issues. So he had his, his reputation was bad, right? He also had uh, prophecy issues and teaching issues, but he had character issues. He, he, he had over 40 or around 40 wives. 40 wives, when he secretly started teaching only a select small group of people that poly, uh, excuse me, polygamy was now accepted by God. 
And so he got married sometimes behind his wife's back and he would marry. In some cases, a woman would, would, would stay in the house as a housemaid and he would secretly marry her. Uh, there's one story about his wife finding them in the barn together. Uh, th- th- and this stuff is, is not in a, it's not secret. I mean, it's, it's like out there now in the open. 11 of the women that Joseph Smith married were already married. They had living, living husbands and he went and got secretly married to them. And, and then some say, well, he didn't, you know, sleep with them. And it's like, well, really, you think he stopped there? I, I have no reason <laughs> to think that he stopped there. I think this is what happens. This is what Muhammad did too in Islam. A man with a lot of power starts to seek to change his religion in order to satisfy his carnal desires. And so that's what he's doing. Uh, one, of these, one of these girls he married was 14 years old. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal. But today there are over 16 million members of the Mormon church and it is a multi-billion dollar corporation. It owns billion dollar malls and other businesses and it's, it's massive. Oh, it just, it, like it breaks my heart. Like my aunt and my uncle are, are older and I just, I, I like it. I cry because I'm like, it's going to be too late for them. And they've been deceived. And I just, I don't know how to break into that, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and don't discount the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not like it's just totally your job to change people's hearts and minds. God is at work in people's lives. And their response to the gospel is really not just their response to what they've heard. It's also the response to the calling of the spirit in their life. And so there's a, there's an element there where we have to realize that, um, that we share the truth, we share the gospel, uh, but we trust in the work of the spirit in someone else's life. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about our next question. Uh, whenever, like, we would we had a guest speaker one time that was a, a, a Mormon. She was a thirty-year tenured professor at BYU, mm-hmm. and she came in, and I sent her book to all my Mormon cousins and said, "Would you come and hear her speak?" One of them sent back, and of course said, "No, thank you. This is my testimony. I believe the blah 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 blah." And so everyone has their testimony, and so explain what what that means. Because it's not like, like, I know I came to Christ, I accepted him into my life, and I love him and live for him. But for them, it's completely something different. Yeah. So, okay. The testimony in a, uh, in a Mormon context is the word means a lot of a different thing than what it means to most Christians. Most Christians are thinking testimony is either um, me testifying, declaring, you know, my, my faith in Christ, or it is me telling you the story of, of sort of how God has worked in my life and how he's changed my life as I, as I have trusted in him. We tend to think of it like that, but in, in Mormon teaching, it's a little different. So in the LDS view or the Latter-day Saints, which is a synonym for Mormonism, same thing. So in the Mormon view, the testimony is, it refers to like a moment when you just felt strongly that the Mormon church was true. So it, it refers to like a moment where you had like a feeling. Okay a sense of a feeling, a sense of a conviction. This is also called a burning in the bosom. That was the traditional term. I mean, nowadays, the term bosom has changed meanings over time. So it's embarrassing. It's awkward, but they didn't mean it that way. They just meant like, you know, like internally, I'm like, oh, I could just feel it, you know, right. down in my heart. That's what they really meant. Um, but the problem with this is that, you know, Satan can give you feelings too. And you can just have weird feelings. Like think of times where you, you felt all kinds of puppy love for someone. And a week later, you're like, ew, they're gross. I mean, this is just, this is just human life, right? This is, we're just, we're just weird like that. Your heart can deceive you. The Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so they're literally testing their theology with their feelings at this point. But in Mormonism, we'll talk more about that later, but they think the Holy Spirit kind of is your feelings. I mean, this is, this is the confusion that happens there. 
So there's also a difference with how your testimony sounds. When a Christian says, gives a testimony, they're like, Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead. Right, that's in Romans 10, right? Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead. That's, that's the proclamation of faith. But put up on the screen the testimony glove. This is from a Mormon website, and it gives you a description of the essential elements of a testimony. See, there's like five fingers, there's five photos, and there's five things that are, the Mormon should be saying when they're giving their testimony. Let me read to you an example. Um, this is one of their elders who says, a testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ will always include these clear and simple truths. One, uh, here it is. I'll, I'll do the thumb. I'll do it in order here. <laughs> one, God lives. He's our loving father in heaven and we are his children. <clears throat> of course, we'll explain how that means nothing like what you think it means as a Christian. Um, then they say too, Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and the savior of the world. That doesn't mean what you think it means either. Mm -hmm. Three, Joseph Smith is the prophet of God through whom the gospel of Jesus Christ was restored in the latter days. And through that, we smuggle in all kinds of false theology. Four, the book of Mormon is the word of God. Notice that that's, notice nothing about the Bible in this testimony here. It's, it's the book of Mormon is the word of God. And five, the current leader of the church, President Russell Nelson, his counselors and the members of the quorum of the 12 are the apostles and seers and revelators in our day. That's that last pinky picture right there. That's the current president. Cause they look at him as a, um, as, as inhabiting the office of the highest of the apostles today. So when they do this, when they offer your testimony, now this is, as you notice, this is a teaching tool for children. This is to ask children to repeat these things. That's why they have a glove that you'll put on and put the pictures on it. The, the thing the Mormons do with the testimony um, on the inside of Mormonism is they ask you to share your testimony kind of whether you feel it or not and to continue bearing your testimony. And as you proclaim these things are true, these five things over and over, you say it's true. They say that when you say it, it will grow your testimony or your conviction that it's true. So this is kind of like brainwashing. Just say it and right. say it and say it and eventually you'll believe it. They say that when you say these five things, it invites the Holy Ghost and that it, you know, it grows as you share it. Every first Sunday of the month in uh, LDS churches, they gather and they do testimony sharing. This is what they do. They get up and they share a testimony. It might be something else, but everyone's supposed to do these five things. And it's kind of pressure from parents. Like you're supposed to get up there and at some point bear your testimony. And then you're kind of relieved. Oh, finally, I got my testimony, okay. with, by which they mean a feeling that it's true. This is also the fallback position. If they find evidence that Mormonism is false, they'll just start bearing their testimony as a way of kind of reentering that uh, forced belief mentality. Um, when, like whenever a Mormon would come talk to me, they would give me the Book of Mormon and they would say, you need to pray and you need to ask the Holy Spirit that if this is the truth. And I'm like, I don't even need to do that <laughs> because I already have the truth. But mm -hmm. when I was talking to one of my cousins one time about this, he just wrote and said, well, you just haven't been like enlightened like we yeah. have. Like, mm -hmm. And it's almost like there's this idea that, that they, they're superior because they've been enlightened more than we have. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think it works that way. So mm -hmm. what's, what's the deal? <clears throat> yeah. So they kind of like, you know, they used to say uh, before any Mormons today were even alive, they would say that you're, you're, you're an abomination. Your creeds are an abomination before God. All the things you believe are wicked. Now that's very different. They're just like, you're Christian light and we're Christian, you know, heavy, <laughs> you know? And, and so, so now they think, oh yeah, you're Christian. Like God still likes you and everything, but we've got the full revelation and you just have part of it. So you just got to pray and you'll get the rest. But they don't realize our beliefs are like, you know, diametrically opposed. 
if I have part of the revelation, then your revelation is completely false, right? And if you have even any of the revelation, then my revelation is completely false because these things disagree with each other. Like that's just reality. It doesn't sound friendly, but I don't want to lie just to try to look like I'm being friendly. Right. I had a friend who converted to Mormonism and she came back and she said, guys, it's like I'm a super Christian now. <laughs> that's the feeling. And yeah. She left eventually, you know, it was temporary. It was very emotional kind of experience for her, but um, they think the gospel has been restored um, and they have new revelation and they have new leadership and they have new scriptures. And so they think they're like you, but with better and more stuff. Yeah. In reality, they say restored gospel, but it's a false gospel. I, I, and this breaks my heart. I don't want it to be. I, I wish I could say Mormons are Christians, right? Yeah. I wish I could say Mormonism is Christian. Um, they say new revelation, but it's actually false prophecy. They say new leadership, but they're actually false apostles. And if we love Mormons, we want to warn them about their own beliefs to see them uh, get saved ultimately. Yes. So interestingly, Mormonism is proven uh, over and over. You'll see this from the, from all the theologians, from all the, even the scholars in the Mormon church, they'll say, guys, I'll try to answer your archeology span question here. But in the end, it's all about faith. It's all about just believing and trusting. And that's all it's about. But in the new Testament, the first Christians didn't say that. What they did was they proved who Jesus was using the Old Testament, showing that what Jesus did was consistent with the Old Testament, fulfilled prophecy in Jesus and the witness of the resurrection, not internal feelings, but rather they saw him alive with their own eyes. And they would say, I was a witness. And people would, you know, were two or, two or three witnesses to confirm a matter. Multiple witnesses saw Jesus alive from the dead and then died for those beliefs. These are, in other words, Christianity is a fact-based belief, whereas Mormonism is ultimately uh, based upon uh, feelings. Yeah. You know, it's funny this morning I was, um, at my, you're going to laugh, my perfume bottle ran out. So I, I went to the cupboard and I grabbed a new one that I had and I was opening it up. I remembered when we were in New York many years ago, like they were selling the same perfume, like on the side of the street. So I was like, Oh my gosh, it's cheaper. Yay. And so I grabbed it. But when I opened it, it looked the same on the outside, but inside it didn't smell the same. It wasn't the same. Nothing was right, mm. but it was in the same package. So I think mm. that's what happens when like a missionary comes to the door and they're like, Hey, let's talk about Jesus and let's start, but they mean different things. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's start with, with yeah. Jesus because they'll say Jesus. Um, my, my cousin just wrote me the other day and was talking about, um, I'm so thankful that Jesus rose from the dead and it's, you know, changed, you know, where would we be without that? I'm thinking mm. we're not even talking the same thing. Mm. So talk about the differences, what you and I would believe about Jesus and what they would. All right. Well, let me first just offer a caveat, like a quick, before I get into this, um, Mormons are often taught that there are sort of almost two, like the way it comes out is like, like two levels of, of, of knowledge in Mormonism. There's like the milk and the meat. And the milk is sort of like the low level theology, the real simplistic version of understanding their beliefs. And the meat is like high level theology. Um, the milk is meant to look just like Christianity. The meat is totally non-Christian, unbiblical and scarily heretical. Okay. When Mormon missionaries come to your door, they're 17, 18. They only know the milk. They literally discover polytheism or the idea that God has a physical body and has, has slept with his multiple wives in heaven. Um, they discover all this stuff usually on their mission trip when other non-Mormons bring it up to them. You guys believe this. And usually the missionary says, we don't believe that because they don't even know yeah. because they've purposely withheld core theology from them because it's just so obviously wacky. They want to wait till they're in this like indoctrination mode, which is a two-year mission trip. 
Um, so I, I get into that to say this. If you're Mormon and you're listening, I'm not making this up. Look it up on your own. I'm going to quote Mormon sources for you on this. If you think the Mormon church doesn't teach this, it's because they have deliberately withheld it from you. Um, and when you find it out, remember how offended you were when you found out what they actually taught, because that will help you realize there's a truth about Jesus that's not there in the Mormon church. Um, so let's put up slide number three. This is about Jesus. Um, they use the same vocabulary as us, same words, but it's a different dictionary, right? So the Christian definition of Jesus uh, is that he's this, the same God of the Old Testament. He is that very God, the only God that exists, and he's God the Son. So the, he's in person, personhood, he is the Son. He's always existed as God, and then he became incarnate and became a, a human. So he's still God. He's God and man. That's like the, the careful theology of, of uh, the Christian faith. But the Mormon definition of Jesus is very different. Jesus did not always exist. He was born in heaven to physical parents in the pre-existence. He's actually Satan's older brother and our older brother. We're all just brothers. He's just older than us. He became incarnate or took on human form in order to become a God on his own. And he has now been a God for approximately 2000 years. He's one of three different gods in what the Mormons think of as the Trinity, although they use that word differently than we do. Let me read to you a quote. This is um, from LDS Church News, um, Newsweek, ending June 20, 1998, page 7. So here's the quote. In bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, President Hinckley, that's the president of the Mormon Church, spoke of those outside the church who say Latter-day Saints do not believe in the traditional Christ. No, I don't. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. For the Christ of whom I speak has been revealed in this dispensation of the fullness of times. He, together with his father, appeared to the boy Joseph Smith in the year 1820. And when Joseph left the grove that day, he knew more of the nature of God than all the learned ministers in the gospel of, of the ages. So they, they admit in some instances, like here's a president of the church saying, no, I don't believe in your Jesus. But more missionaries don't know this, right? They think it's the same Jesus. So they, they've been hoodwinked. And it's tough because we have to kind of fight to help them understand even what their church teaches often before helping them understand that it's not biblical. Is it a good time to share Christ with missionaries? Like, are they, are some of them just so zealous that they're just like, or, or is that a good time? Because I know this woman who, you know, Lynn Wilder, I'm sure you probably know her. Like, her son came to Christ because he tried to tell a pastor about, you know, Mormonism and the truth. And the guy just told him, you know, you need to go home and, and read the, the New Testament like a child. Pretend like you know nothing. And he got saved on his Mormon mission trip. So wow. um, is, that a good, is that a good time to try to talk to these people? Or are they just so indoctrinated at that point? Yeah, so <clears throat> when they're on a Mormon mission trip, uh, it, I would just say any time's a good time to talk to, to them. <laughs> Who cares how indoctrinated they are? Right. Why not reach out? Every time's a good time. But the environment of a mission trip is such that <laughs> while they're going door to door, when they leave, they head over to the home of, of missionary supporters. These people are paid by the church to help uh, house these individuals. And they're there to like clean up the mess each day and to kind of slowly indoctrinate them. This mission trip is as much about indoctrinating the 17 year old guy or girl as it is about outreaching and trying to make more Mormons. It's, it's, it's a, you know, they go door to door, they share over and over and over again. They're put in conflict situations where they have to defend the Mormon church then they come back with questions and like, what about, I heard Joseph Smith married a 14 year old. Like what's up with that? And then that person who's older is able to kind of like sort of fix the damage. Uh, and, okay. and, and then, then they come back home and it's like, now they know what real Mormonism is. So yeah, it, but it's always a good time to witness. Why not? Why would we not reach out at all times? Yeah. 
right, let's talk about God. They're, they're God the Father. So it's yeah. completely different than what we believe. Yes. Now, I don't know if I gave you slide number two. I'm looking at my notes thinking I might not have given it to you. Did I give you slide two? There it is. Perfect. That one. All right. So a Christian definition of God, he's always been God. Like that doesn't seem like something I have to say, but I do. Okay. He's unchanging. He's very character and nature is not changing. Um, he is spirit. That's the nature of who he is. He's not physical. He's spirit. And he's always been omnipotent, always perfect. He's always been all knowing. Mormon definition, totally different God. He's not eternal. He actually used to be a man before he was God. He has a body of flesh and bones right now. He stands around 10 feet tall or so. He started as a man and lived and died and was resurrected and then became a God. He gained all of the God attributes progressively. And he has at least one wife, very probably has a lot more than one wife. This is a totally different version of God. Now, let me, <clears throat> let me uh, share with you a quote from Joseph Smith himself, because a lot of Mormons, again, don't even know this, but this is in their theology. And uh, I'll read it to you now. This is from the Follett Sermon, the King Follett Sermon. This is what Joseph Smith gave at a funeral service on April 7th, 1844. There were supposedly 20,000 people present. And this is important. He claimed he was inspired by God and that he was speaking to all the nations when he said this. So he's speaking as a prophet, claiming he's inspired. inspired so Mormons have to believe this. Well, <clears throat> here's what it says. I will go back to the beginning before the world was to show what kind of a being God is. What sort of being was God in the beginning? Open your ears and hear all ye ends of the earth. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. I say, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form, like yourselves in all the person, image, and very form as a man. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. These ideas are incomprehensible to some, but they are simple. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty that the character of God and the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another and that he was once a man like us. Yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ. Christ himself did. The scriptures inform us that Jesus said, as the father hath power in himself, even so hath the son power. To do what? Why the, what the father did? The answer is obvious. In a manner to lay down his body and to take it up again. Jesus, what are you going to do? To lay down my life as my father did and take it up again. Do you believe it? If you do not believe it, you do not believe the Bible. The scriptures say it and I defy all the learning and wisdom and all the combined powers of earth and hell together to refute it. So, couple points. You can't argue that he's not saying that God was once a man and then that Jesus is in the same process. He's a man. He's going to become a God. Um, he then goes on to say, and if you don't believe it, you don't believe the gospel. This is essential Mormon doctrine. Okay. This is one of the first principles of the gospel to them. Now, again, they won't often tell these things to kids until they're on their mission trips. So 17 years old, they're telling you that the church is true and they don't even know what the church teaches about God in some cases. It's crazy. Now, let me just share one verse of scripture on this. Isaiah 43, 10. What does the Bible say about this idea? <clears throat> okay, based on Mormonism, there's been lots of gods before God. God became a God. There's lots more gods after God. But Isaiah 43, 10 says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. None before God, none after God. He's eternal God. That's Christian theology. This is why we say it's not Christian. It's like this, you use the word God, but you're talking about something totally different. Oh, 
I know. I don't know why this stresses me out so much. Because the stakes are high for the for, stakes uh, are really troopers. high. Yeah, mm-hmm. it it really is, and it, yeah, and it it just feels really important to get this out there to people that they really know the differences because we. Cheyenne has a really good friend that just one day raised a Christian, went to the same church, and one day just joined the Mormon church and is like, and putting stuff, and we're like, how did that even happen? And I think it's because no one's teaching people that this is a thing and we need to like be able to stand up to it. So, um, all right, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. What is their differences between that? So we'll put up that slide now. The Holy Spirit as a Christian definition of the Holy Spirit um, is that the Holy Spirit is that same God. There's only one God, right? So he, he's God, but as, as far as being one God, but there's different persons. Um, and so we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's that same God, God the Spirit. He's always existed as God, and he's the third person of the Trinity. He's personal. Uh, he has a will and thoughts and things like that. Uh, the Holy Spirit on Mormonism is the God, the third God of the Trinity, because their Trinity is three gods, not one God in three persons, but three gods. So if I can put up slide six, like this is, this is a, a, just a really useful illustration of the Trinity. So you see in the middle God, right? And God is the Father, and God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. Yet the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So these, this is three persons, one being. That's the nature of God. So it's not like God is three gods and one God. No, he's one God, three persons. And that's how scripture has revealed him. This is, this is really one way to understand this is this is how God is love. God has always been tripersonal. So he's always been able to have love within himself because love requires someone else to love. And so God has always been able to love even from eternity past. And so that's kind of a neat thing to think about. So we say, hey, there's only one God. Well, they say the same thing. There's only one God, but they don't mean that. What they mean is, well, there's like, okay, there's billions and billions of gods, but we just worship one of them. <laughs> that's what they really mean. We're only worshiping one. Um, so it, really on Mormonism, there's more gods on Mormonism than there is even in Hinduism, which has, I don't know, some 9 million or so gods. Yeah. It's hard for someone to understand that. Like when you say, I'm sorry, but you believe in multiple gods. And they're like, what are you talking about? Oh, we don't. So yeah. it, it's a hard to be, barrier to you have break. To be careful. So like if you're talking to a Mormon, if you say, do you believe in lots of gods? They'll be like, no, I only believe in one. And they just mean they have allegiance to one. So you have to say things like, are the, how many gods exist? Then you can get to really their theology because it's very squirrely sometimes trying to talk to people. But do most of them not even know that? Um, it just depends, I think, on their age. Right. Um, the younger ones don't. The older ones usually do. Right. Usually the younger ones, it's like zeal, like, oh, yeah, more is true. And then a little while later, then they're like, well, you know, it's complicated. You know? <laughs> and so yeah. it, it, there's a bit of a disenchanting that comes when you start to understand Mormon theology. And I don't think we wrote this in, the, in a question, but... Mm-hmm. I also believe like if you're a really good Mormon, you can become a God. Like you can yes. become one of those gods. So touch on that for one second. Cause I don't think I wrote that. Sorry. Well, we will talk a little bit about that. Um, I'll mention it when we talk about heaven, what they think okay. of as heaven, well, but we'll, we'll, we'll worry about that now. Then. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea that. is, well, let me, I'll just really quick for people who are listening. Cause they're going to want to know <laughs> how this works. If you're, <laughs> if you're not only a Mormon, but you're basically a really good Mormon after you die, you get to start on a path of eternal progression of becoming better and better and better until you become a God. And then in heaven, you make tons of babies. And when you have enough babies made in heaven, you create, a, you take a planet, form a planet, and then you send your babies down to live human lives and continue the same cycle that's going on on the earth. So you become the, the same as God. Uh, you become a God. Yeah. 
See, yeah, now that, that came from Satan originally, right? Satan in the garden was like, you'll be his God, right? And, and this is like kind of the original lie. Yeah. But you can kind of see like why, like if you're, you know, like in the end times, like people will be lovers themselves and love, like it's all about me. So you can kind of see where someone's yeah. like, hey, I'm going to do a lot because I want to be my own God of my own world. Like that, that's appealing to some people, I would assume. Yeah, I think it is. And I think what it does is it pits you up at a, to a moment where you have to ask, wait, do I worship God or do I worship me? Do I want to give him glory or do I want to gain glory? And Mormonism's like, look at all the glory you can get. Like, we don't want to talk about it like it's arrogant or proud, but but yeah, you can become a God. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's a point that I think reveals the the self-worship nature that, that happens in, in Mormonism. Um, all right, let's do, uh, let's talk about grace. Uh, you know, for us, we say, you know, of course, we're saved by grace. Mm -hmm. But as a Mormon, it really is a lot about, about work. So let's, let's put that, um, we'll look at that. What is that? Explain? Yeah, it's right at the core of the gospel. We have this whole idea that you're saved and you didn't do anything for it. End of story, right? All the benefits of the salvation of Christ, they, they come at the cost of his death on the cross. And I just receive. I'm the, I'm the one opening the gift. I don't package it. I don't, I don't buy it. I don't do anything. But the Mormon definition, it's a mixed bag, right? Jesus, he only purchases you initial resurrection, but you can still be damned after that. You're going to get some kind of resurrection, but there's multiple destinations to go. There's several def different destinations. Um, you, you need to work really hard to get full salvation. And if you don't, you might get one of the other lower levels of salvation, but that's all based on your works. So they often say we're saved by grace after all that we do which isn't grace, by the way, right? I'll, I'll, I'll give you this money for free after you work for it. Like, that's not grace. This is, this is, this is a contradiction. Yeah. Yeah, um, and yeah we that's get the that verse right there. Ephesians 2. Uh, yeah, right, beautiful right? verse. So encouraging to the heart of a Christian to know that I'm saved apart from my works, that it's just Jesus who cleanses me, who makes me righteous in his eyes. And then I'm going to be experiencing the glory of heaven with God, worshiping him, not me forever right? with the eternal family in Christ. I'm going to be experiencing all this by his grace and kindness that I haven't done anything to earn it. That stirs me up to want to serve the Lord, but not to earn anything, but just out of love. That's right. beautiful. Yeah. I think there's a big difference between the two there. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Let's talk about this whole idea of, okay, Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And you just pretty much said something about it just now. When, and we say, like, when my cousin wrote that to me, I'm thinking, we don't even, like, Jesus rising from the dead for me is completely different than Jesus rising from the dead for you. And you just mentioned that. Explain that a little bit better on what his resurrection means as a Mormon. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let me answer this in two ways. One, the way Jesus' resurrection, death and resurrection affects Jesus is different in Mormonism. And the way it affects us is different in Mormonism. So... In Mormonism, Jesus' death and resurrection shows his righteousness, and now it shows that he is becoming a, he has become a god himself. So he is, again, he's like 2,000 years he's been a god. That's Mormon theology, as opposed to him being the one who was in the beginning with God and was God, which is what John 1.1 1, 1 says. Now, on the other hand, his resurrection and what it does for us is very different on Mormonism, because in Christianity, if I'm in Christ, because of his resurrection, I have eternal life. Like, there's just one one destination, heaven, right? I, and I have that, that place in God's presence forever, <clears throat> which will eventually be a new heaven on earth and all that. But the, um, the Mormon definition is this. Jesus' resurrection only gets you 
a physical body after you die, it doesn't say anything about where you go and what you experience in that physical body. So you, his resurrection just gets you some kind of eternal experience and it could be a bad one. You could have his resurrection bring you and, and, and Jesus's resurrection applies to everybody, not just to Mormons or to people who believe in him. Everybody's so, going to get resurrected, whether they believe in him or not. And then they're going to um, experience different eternal things based upon their works. So me as a non-Mormon, Jesus, that's when, so when she said that, to her, it's like Jesus's resurrection um, just made the way for her and for me and all of us to be able to go someplace. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just, it's a weak understanding of what the resurrection does. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's do one more and then we'll, then we're just going to take like a 10 second break because we need to make this part two, but, um, let's talk about this whole idea of exaltation. So that's something that, that Mormons believe that we kind of don't. So, um, tell me what that even means. Well, again, when they talk about, uh, you know, the afterlife, the, the goal of the afterlife, the highest goal, the greatest thing would be to become a God become your own God um, and populate your own planet and be worshiped by people. So let me show you, put up slide 12, if you would, please. Um, this slide talks about the difference between a Christian understanding of exaltation versus Mormon. Oh, um, you got it. it should be next. Next one. I think it'll be up there. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> Christian definition, Hey, it's being with God forever in glorified human bodies. That's it. Mormon definition, becoming a God, populating your own heaven with spirit children and eventually getting your own planet and all that other stuff. Let me, <clears throat> excuse me, let me read to you another quote from the King Follett sermon. This is the same sermon from Joseph Smith, who declared he was speaking uh, in the place of God about these issues. He says, here then is eternal life to know the only wise and true God. And you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, namely by going from one small degree to another and from one small capacity to a great one from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. In other words, you need to try to become a God. That's a big, big deal to them. Uh, this is again, this is something where when I talked to missionaries at the door, I was like, you guys think you become gods when you die? And they were like, no, we, they were offended. They thought I was mocking their religion. They thought I was lying about them. And I knew when they went home and got to their hosts and were like, the guy said that we believe in lots of gods that their host was going to go, well, actually, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, and so it, it's, it's a huge challenge because they protect people from the weirdest parts of their theology until they're more and more invested in the church. And so then it's a higher cost if they leave. Right. I think that's what, and we'll talk about that too. It's, it's very costly for them to actually leave the church and we'll, and we'll talk about that too in a second. So let's talk about um, the differences between the word. When we say the gospel, like we we know what that means. What is the gospel to us and the gospel to to a Mormon? Yeah, there's such a big difference here. Um, When we say the gospel, we, we, we mean the message that um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we have this sort of guilt of our sin and we will stand in judgment before God. But, but Jesus, he paid the price for that sin on the cross. And if you believe in him, believe he died and rose again, you put your trust in him. You turn from that life of rebellion to a life of loving God, then you'll be saved. And you're forgiven uh, entirely apart from your works, right? It's just about like this heart change shifting towards God. 
and a faith in Christ. But the, the LDS church or the Mormons, they believe in a restored gospel. That's what they call it, the restored gospel. And so they have several requirements. And these are the requirements ultimately for exaltation, for that highest degree of salvation, exaltation. And I'll read some of them to you. These are just some of them. There's more, actually. You have to, one, obey all the commands of God. And already every Mormon has failed, right? You have to obey all the commands of God, right? Which would be loving your neighbor as yourself, um, doing unto others as you want them to do unto you. These are commands that everyone disobeys every week, I think, in one measure or another. So obey the commands of God. You have to be baptized. You have to be baptized in a, in a special way. You have to become an LDS member. So if you're not a member of their church, then you don't get this. Uh, you have to become a Melchizedekian priest. They believe that there's an active priesthood, which the Bible doesn't speak of. Uh, basically fabricated a priesthood. And they say, we're, we're priests of Melchizedek, which is really a prophecy about Jesus and not about anybody else. Uh, women are out of this effectively. And black people recently are in, uh, up until the late 70s, 1978, the year I was born, the Mormon church taught that uh, black people could not be part of the priesthood. And then they shifted and they said, okay, now you can. This had to do with racist teachings from the past that they slowly were kind of working out. They've even altered their Book of Mormon to try to like, you know, make those teachings look softer. You also have to receive the temple endowment, which is um, a process you go through, like getting approved in the temple. And you have to get married in the temple, which now this doesn't mean the church. This means like these temples, there's like 160 of them right now around the world. And there's a whole bunch of other things you have to do. And then you can receive exaltation. Uh, doesn't sound like good news to me. <laughs> it really doesn't. Like, I, I'm sorry, but I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of out on that. You know, I, I'm number one on the whole, you know, you can't mm -hmm. sin. Like, that's just not, yeah. I lost on that already. Um, all right, let's go to this whole idea of eternity. Because for, for the Bible, like, we know, like, you go uh, one of two places. Like, either you will spend eternity with mm -hmm. God forever or you will be spent, so, you know, eternity separated in hell, I guess is what we would say. But they don't believe that. Like to them, there's three different levels. So let's talk about that. Let me first show you the scripture. Do you want they the bring chart this. or do you want the chart of the scripture first? Uh, the scripture first, please. Yeah. Um, sure. then I'll do the chart a little bit later. I'll go. put it in my notes. There anyway. Okay. So um, the scripture, Second uh, Corinthians 12, 2, this is what it says. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And then Paul talks about a vision he had, right? Now, here, what Mormon theology has done, it has taken this verse and it has combined it with other things that aren't related. And it has expanded this into a ton of theology about the afterlife. So let's put up that image about the three heavens. This is, this is a good representation of Mormon theology about the afterlife. So you can see earth on one side, and then after someone dies, they either go to one of generally one of three levels, the telestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, or the highest level there, the celestial kingdom. If you're, if you're really good Mormon, you go to the celestial kingdom. If you're a really, really good Mormon, then in the celestial kingdom, you can end up becoming a God, right? That's the highest level. The, the, that's the, the first level. The second level down, the uh, terrestrial kingdom is for ignorant, but honorable people. Christians, uh, generally good people, and Mormons who weren't good Mormons, but at least they were on the rolls of the church. Okay. So you're still, your name's on the rolls there. So and it's like going? earth. What's that? Where are you going? I'm, I'm, well, oh, you don't, you don't want to know where I'm going. Find <laughs> 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 right, uh, place I'm going, so you have to let me know. I speak openly against the Mormon church, so that probably consigns me to, um, to hell darkness. or to their outer darkness. Yeah. Um, I'll meet you so, there. Yeah, so yeah, you're, you might be going there too now. Um, but they, they think that this 
second kingdom terrestrial is like earth. It's a lot like earth and the heavenly father never visits you here. You never get to see him. Jesus will sometimes visit you, but he doesn't live with you. Okay. That's this terrestrial kingdom. Now you go down to the next one down the celestial kingdom. This is where unbelievers go and who are lousy people who are just bad people. Right. And Jesus won't even visit you here. So you don't, the father won't visit you. Jesus won't visit you, but the Holy ghost will sometimes visit you here according to their theology. And then finally, those who are, who leave Mormonism and, and have their names removed from the roles of the church. They don't go to that terrestrial kingdom. They go all the way down to that one that's on the bottom of the screen there. They go down to outer darkness. And then people like me who probably preach against the church. Like I go to a worse place than the um, celestial kingdom where like adulterers and whoremongers go and liars. (laughs) Those who apostatize from the Mormon church go even, even lower than that. So it's a big threat against those who apostatize. So let's come back to to us here. And um, what I'd like to share with you is the answer to the question, the obvious question. Well, then what is the Bible talking about when it says three heavens, right? Like they've added all this theology. There's tons of theology there. That's in, it, Paul just says third heaven. And then they have, all this theology comes out of nowhere, literally made up words. You know, uh, telestial is a made up word. Like it's not even a word until Mormonism uses it, to my knowledge. So what does the Bible say about the three heavens? Well, it's pretty consistent. It's talking about uh, sky, like the birds fly in the midst of heaven. That's the sky. It's talking about like where the stars and the sun and moon are. That's another heaven, so to speak. And then, and then finally, heaven to describe where God is. So we don't know where that's located, but we know it's where God is. Uh, Craig Keener, who's a brilliant scholar on the Bible background information, this kind of stuff, he says the lower atmosphere was usually regarded as the lowest heaven. So the lowest atmosphere in, in almost everybody back then, when they said the lowest heaven, they're like, you know, where birds fly where clouds are, that's the lowest heaven. On Mormonism, the lowest heaven is like a whole like future location, like a planet almost. That's like kind of a lousy place to be, but the Holy Ghost will visit you sometimes. So this is obviously different than the Bible. Um, The Bible just says there's one destination for the saved, one for the unsaved, eternal life or eternal damnation. Um, On Mormonism though, hell is like barely occupied, barely occupied. Yeah. Wow. So, so you can see why they're so bent on, like, I have to work, 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 because I need to get up there and be with God the Father, and I want to, you know. But there's, yeah. like you said, it's all the works. I've got to be Temple Recommend. I have to, do, there's so many things you have to do here to get there. So you see now why people are desperate to work really hard. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, it's, it's working to get. And the two problems with this is that you're never going to be good enough. Right. And that's why we, that's why we really need Jesus. This is why the gospel is such good news to Mormons who've been laboring, laboring, laboring. And they realize like, no, Jesus has come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will find yeah. rest for your soul. And you go, Lord, I'm just forgiven. I live in the grace and in the forgiveness. I don't live for it. Yeah. I live it's in it. Difference. And man, that changes everything. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, there's so much more stuff, but I'll, I'll let you move on to the next question. If you like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's talk about in context. Like when you and I, study or teach is like we have to say okay this has to be in in context of what the whole scripture says yeah. so in mormonism like you, you have this in ezekiel there's this prophecy about two sticks mm-hmm. and in context of course we know it's the northern and the southern kingdoms and and it talks about these two sticks coming back together and and it's kind of how you know it's where god is saying like the jewish people are going to come back and they'll be restored and all that stuff but yeah. but as a mormon they literally take that out of context and they're like no the two sticks are the bible and the book of mormon 
And so there's a lot of things that they, they, they just take a, a Bible. For, and if, if someone doesn't know or they don't know how to study the Bible, then they just go off on this whole tangent. So talk about why it's so important. If a Mormon is watching, like really go back and study these things in the context of what it's talking about. Yeah, please. You know, don't, I'm not claiming to be a prophet of God. Go, go study it on your own. Read the Bible. This is actually uh, the verse you mentioned is something that a Mormon brought up to me when I was young. And I, I had never heard this before, right? I, I, my initial contact with, with Mormonism was just talking to Mormons. I was raised in Cyprus and here in Orange County, North Orange County in Cyprus, there's a very large Mormon population. So I had Mormon friends and people knocking on my door. So we talked, and at one point they, quote, they quoted that Ezekiel passage. They said, it's the stick of, of Ephraim and the stick of Joseph. The stick of Ephraim, that's the Bible. The stick of Joseph is the Book of Mormon. And I went, I've never read that verse. I don't know. Right? I'm a very young guy. And I open it up, and I just go, let's look at it. And, and this, is always, this is always policy. Someone hits you with a verse to teach theology you've never heard of. Slow down and just go read it in context. Just make them wait while you read it. Read it with them. That's fine. You read it in context and you go, wait a minute, this is talking about the two tribes of Israel. <laughs> exactly. They split into northern southern kingdoms and God's going to bring them back together. Now, Mormon scholars, some will say, no, the word stick is referring to the kind of stick that you would put a scroll on. And so it's really about a book. Except that's just Hebrew mumbo jumbo because that's not true about Hebrew. The word stick just means stick. It's, it, there's nothing intimating a book in the passage. The same word is used to refer to sticks in other places in the Bible. And so this is just, they're trying to spin it. Um, there's another one that they take out of context all the time that I think everybody should know about. And it's James 1.5. So James 1.5, if we'll put it on the screen, this is, this is like the verse that the missionary will share with you. And they'll say, the Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And then they'll conclude. Their conclusion is now pray and see if you feel that Mormonism is true. And if you pray and you get a good feeling, well, then that means that Mormonism is true. And we know that feelings from God because James 1 5 says that God will give you wisdom. There's several problems with this. One is uh, that, of course, the following verse tells us that if you pray in doubt that you won't get an answer from God. Okay, so when I'm praying, God, is the Book of Mormon true? Is polytheism true? Is it true that Jesus wasn't always God? Is it true that my salvation is actually also based upon my works? These are, I'm basically saying, God, is, is the Bible wrong? And have you lied to us? Like, this is not a prayer of faith. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. The other problem is that this, this uh, context of James 1 is that it's about trials and wisdom for getting through hard times. It is not about discernment, about theology. Like I wish as a Christian that you could just pray and you would get a good feeling about whatever theology to believe. Right. Problem is we would all be getting all kinds of different feelings and we, and we would all get the theology that would make us feel good because it felt good when we got it, you know? And so there's like a danger there of going off of feelings. What does scripture say about my feelings? It says my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And I therefore cannot trust it, That I want to trust the Lord with my heart, not trust my heart with the Lord. <laughs> trust, trust my heart to give me theology. That's scary. Is it possible that maybe even Satan can cause good feelings to happen in a person? I don't see why not. Um, and so we, we might not even be getting an answer from God in that, in, that, uh, in that case. But that's a verse they use often because they don't want to prove Mormonism with evidence. They want to prove it with your feelings. Right. Then they use a verse to try to get you to pray and rely on your feelings. And then they hope you feel something. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, there's another verse I guess I could share with you. James 2.20, the verse that's often taken out of context by a lot of groups, actually. 
It says, do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? And then it goes on to talk about how, yeah, if you have faith without works, it's dead or useless or pointless. And they say, see, you have to have faith, but you also have to have works to get saved. The problem with this is, and it would take a longer study through the whole chapter of James, but here's the good news. I have this on my YouTube channel. I have a whole study through James 2 about this pivotal passage on faith and works. And people can look that up just like Mike Winger, James 2, and you'll probably find it. But James, what he's doing here is he's, he's showing us what saving faith looks like in action. He's showing us how to prove that your faith is genuine. He's not telling you how to get saved. That's the big difference. See, we think genuine faith naturally leads to works. And so when someone says, I believe, and they live totally contrary to their beliefs, then you go, do you really believe? Like, is that, for, is that real? I don't know. And that's all James is saying. He's like, do you really believe? Show me that you believe. And this is in verse 18 of James 2. He's like, um, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. But the thing he's showing is faith. Right. So how do you know that I believe in Jesus? Well, you can, you can look at my life. You can even interview my family and be like, how has Mike's life changed since he says he came to Christ? And they could tell you, well, yeah, it's, I've been watching him for a lot of years. His life really did change. You know, it's really dramatically different. And uh, he used to be angry and he used to be all kinds of issues. And I'm really surprised by what's happened. So something good happened because of that whole Christian thing. Like, so they can see that it's, even if they don't believe it, they can see that it's real. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, okay, so um, when they built a brand new temple here in Gilbert, so that's where my cousins live in that area. So they asked us, kind of made a deal, like, we'll come to your temple to see the grand opening of it if they would come to hear the Wilders speak. And so that, that all played out. But when we went there to see the temple, um, they, they made us sit down and watch a video first. And it was all a video on, do you want to see your family? Do you want to see your children? Do you want to, because in order to, to be together, like forever and eternity to be this forever family, then you need to join our church. And so they were really playing on this whole family, you know, so talk a little bit about, I mean, that's a big thing. People, I want to see my kids, but you know, I know it's not going to be because I joined the Mormon church, but what does that look like? Well, I mean, in one sense, it's like, if you're just going to be believe whatever promises you the most, then why stop there? <laughs> why not say, if you want to have beautiful skin and, and an attractive figure in the afterlife, then come join my church. Like I could just make up whatever I want. Right. I mean, think about it, right? Like it could just, whoever offers the most, I'll be that religion. Well, then I'm just going to make up the religion that offers, you know, you could live in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory for eternity. <laughs> like, <that's, laughs> like woo, let me go. I'm going to become a Willy Wonkian. But, um, <laughs> So, but, but there's more to it than this. Actually, the phrase families are forever is, is always leveraged in Mormonism. They leverage it a lot. It's, they've, the reason why they leverage it is because they found it effective, right? Their right. research has shown them that when you tell people families are forever become a Mormon, more of them become Mormons. But families aren't really forever in Mormonism. Sure. Uh, let's put that, that image of the three heavens back up on the screen again, if we can. And I'd like to explain what I mean when I say families aren't forever. Remember how I said that if you're part of the top kingdom, there you are, you, you're, 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 with, you're with God and um, you're with the father. But if you're the next kingdom in a terrestrial kingdom, um, you know, Jesus will visit you, but God, the father won't. Well, if you're Mormon and you're a good Mormon, you go to the top kingdom but bad Mormons, they go to the next kingdom down. 
you don't live together. Even if you can occasionally visit one another, you do not live together. Now, if you go down to the telestial kingdom and you were a dishonest person, a liar, a whoremonger, sorcerer, that kind of thing, and your kid is in that category, but you're a good Mormon, you're in the celestial kingdom, they're in the telestial kingdom. You don't even get to visit each other. Your family's not forever. If you do happen to be up in the celestial kingdom and you do progress and become a god, you end up having to leave, go start your own planet, and guess what? Your family is not forever. That's a really good point. But, and it's like someone needs to think that through. Like, if, you know, as a Mormon, yeah. like you need to really, really think what, what's being said here. Yeah. Um, now, now, on the Christian faith, if your family's in Christ, you're all forever together forever. Like, that's it. That's the whole deal. Everyone's together forever who's in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not part of that eternal family. And that's right. There is separation there. But that's, the, that's also true in Mormonism. It's just even more segregated, actually, their afterlife. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't know why I never thought about that before. Um, when we were in the temple, I saw something beyond disturbing, of course. Uh, and it was the whole baptizing for the dead thing. And I'm like, ah, I'm sorry, but that, like, that just seems so unbiblical. Mm-hmm. So explain, explain that. Actually, I had a buddy in art class uh, when I was in high school who told me that he had got up really early that morning and he went to the church and he had been baptized. And I was like, oh, congratulations, because I don't know what's, I don't know anything, right? <laughs> and, and he's like, oh, no, I do it all the time. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you do it a lot? And apparently they would go to the temple or, or, or to the, um, wherever the baptismal location is and get <clears throat> baptized over and over and over and over again. So they'll dunk you, they'll read a name, and they'll dunk you again, read someone else's name, and they're doing this for people that are dead. So this is why Mormons keep really good genealogical records. If you want to know your genealogy, you can contact the Mormons. Why are they obsessed with your genealogy? Because they have people getting baptized for all your dead relatives. So they are getting the names of everyone and getting baptized. They think baptism is required, and they think that after death, you'll have a chance to get saved still. So they're going to baptize you so you, you know, vicariously you can get baptized they get this from first corinthians 15 29 so here's the verse and this is another example of uh, a verse being taken way too far it says otherwise what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all why are people baptized on their behalf and they say what's baptism of the dead well this is what it is you get baptized on behalf of the dead and then they get a chance to hear the gospel in the afterlife This is a really good example of a cult type tactic where you take what is a very challenging and confusing passage and you smuggle a whole bunch of theology into it that is not justified by that passage. Literally, we just know from the passage, some people were baptizing for the dead, whatever that means, and Paul was using it to make a point. That's what we know from that passage. Um, So what is... What is this baptism for the dead? The first thing we want to ask in 1 Corinthians 15, 29 is who was doing it? Paul doesn't say Christians do it. He doesn't say non-Christians do it. He doesn't say Christians should do it. He just says people do it. So it's a practice that's happening at the time. It could have been a pagan practice. It could have been whatever. It could have been pagan. It could have been false teachers. Mm -hmm. It could have been people who deny the resurrection. Since Paul's, in the flow of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's dealing with the heresy in the church where people were saying that the resurrection is not really going to happen. There is no real afterlife event. And so as an illustration to argue against that view, He says, why then do they baptize for the dead? Now, what's implied is that the same weirdos who taught there is no resurrection were also baptizing for dead people. And he's like, so there's no afterlife, but you're baptizing for dead people? And he's just maybe showing them what's called an internal critique. Hey, look, you guys are inconsistent with yourselves. 
maybe that's what he's doing here, which means that this is a description, not a prescription, right? The Bible has descriptions. It describes weird things people do. Uh, David committed adultery and then murdered the husband Uriah. But that's not a prescription, right? That was a horrible <laughs> thing David did. We, you don't, we don't do this. So this is a, a description of what happens in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. It's not a prescription. So we, we don't really know for sure what was going on there. We just know that Paul never tells us to do it. We don't see it in Acts. We don't see it from Jesus. We don't see it in any of the epistles. He just describes something people did and uses it to make a point. Hey, there is an afterlife. There is a future resurrection. So, so yeah. if they baptize someone, let's just say, and then in their th thought process, the person's dead. Mm -hmm. So he, he still has a chance to become a Mormon after you're dead. Like, does yeah. someone witness to him or what is that? Like, is that what happens? I don't know. Yeah. Missionaries supposedly will go to you at one of your lower levels, you know, of, uh, okay. of existence. And then you can become, and you know, and then eventually you can work your way up to go to not the highest level. Cause it's, you already burnt that bridge, but you can go to one of the levels of heaven uh, that's higher than where you're at. But <clears throat> there are some people that are end up being disqualified. And that's basically people like me who really know Mormon theology and openly preach against it or Mormons who've apostatized, who've left the faith. So to me, it seems more like a selling point for Mormonism. It's like, don't worry, you got dead relatives, we'll take care of them too. And it's just like an empty promise because we all have angst about those of our loved ones who we feel might not know Christ. Yeah. But you can't fix that by just lying about them, okay? God was working in their lives, calling them, and if they did not receive him, then there's a real eternal consequence for that. And uh, that breaks my heart. I think it breaks God's heart. Yeah. But I can't undo that by making up new theology. So when you die, no one's going to be baptizing for you. That's basically what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's talk about the gold tablets. Gold tablets. Um, they're, of course, they're a fraud. We, we know that. Uh, Mormons are victims of fraud. We know that. So explain what you mean by that, because um, the tablets okay. are kind of a, pathetic. Yeah. Yeah, we'll spend a few minutes on this, uh, maybe several minutes on this topic here. Um, just to catch anybody up who watched, didn't watch the first video, um, the first scripture and sort of core scripture for Mormon teaching is the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon was supposedly translated by Joseph Smith from gold tablets that he found under the direction of God in, on a hill called Camorra in New York. And he dug them up and they were in this stone container and they come back to early America and they were written by a prophet back in the day. And he translated them from reformed Egyptian, a language that doesn't exist into um, uh, English for his people. And that's the book of Mormon. So, you know, he says, Hey, I went into the woods to pray based on James one five, which again, we already discovered is a misapplication of that verse. And here's a, a few problems real quick. Uh, Joseph Smith gives at least three different versions of the story. Uh, but generally speaking, God in two different physical bodies appeared and told him all denominations were false and that all of the creeds or the beliefs of denominations are a, an abomination before God. That already rules you out because those creeds are based upon scripture. Many of them anyway, are based upon scripture, like the apostles creed, like you, how do you disagree with this? It's just based on scripture. Um, the problem is uh, the angel ends up, if, let's say that he really saw an angel named Moroni, that it really was an angel. Well, Galatians 1 tells us that even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a different gospel, don't believe it. So it doesn't matter. Even if, even if it was a supernatural experience, we can ignore it. But there's other problems with this story. Early versions of the story uh, from multiple witnesses have Joseph Smith doing, going at different ages 
and going for different reasons into the woods. At some point, he's like digging for buried treasure and he happens to come across. Another point, it's an angel that guides and directs him. So there's conflicting versions of the story. But also the golden plates themselves, they were reportedly six inches by eight inches. So like right about that big, right? Although on your screen, this probably looks real small. <laughs> but six inches by eight inches. And then it was six inches thick, which is actually probably about that thick. I mean, we're talking gold that's big and heavy it had to probably weigh at least 200 pounds and some calculations have been done on this how thin can the pages be because they want to make them real thin so that he could actually carry them so supposedly joseph smith traveled three miles while carrying this 200 pound book minimum he ran full speed he jumped over objects and he fought off three attackers while carrying the book under one arm is that, is that from the book of mormon that's from a, no, no, this is from his accounts that are also, on his, okay, that are, okay. you can get it all from LDS.org even, uh, all this kind of details, because they've, they've cataloged, you know, mountains of literature from him and from uh, the people around him. So um, these gold plates, though, think about this, this would be incredible evidence for Mormonism. If you just show us gold plates in an ancient language that we can even kind of connect to the Book of Mormon, this would be massive. This would prove Mormonism true. Unfortunately, it was only shown to a handful of witnesses, and then the gold plates were eventually taken back up into heaven, God says, according to Mormonism. So what you'll see in the, in the beginning of every Book of Mormon is you'll see this opening page that talks about the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. And I won't try to read all that they write here, but <clears throat> there's three witnesses who declare that they saw the, the gold plates and they saw an angel, and there's eight witnesses who declare that they saw the gold plates. Let's talk about those witnesses because the truth of Mormonism hangs upon these witnesses. Now, this is kind of like in Christianity. We look at the resurrection and we say the apostles were eyewitnesses and we really have hang our case upon the fact that they were saying the truth. With the apostles, we think it was true because what? They were willing to suffer and die for these beliefs. They never recanted and they seem to be, all have been willing to suffer and die for those beliefs. Now, you don't do that when you're making up a lie. And they were eyewitnesses of, of, of the uh, resurrection of Christ. We even have conversions from guys like Paul, who was hostile, or James, who was uh, against Jesus's mission, and who then become Christians because it seems they saw him risen from the dead. This is like a good historical case. But the Mormon witnesses are very different. One of them, one of the three key witnesses is Martin Harris. According to Mormon history, his wife, after leaving him, reports that he was physically abusive, quick-tempered, was cheating on her and spending nights at another woman's house, and that his motive was money. That his motive was money for getting involved in Mormonism. Joseph Smith himself said that Martin Harris later was a wicked man who broke his oaths to God. And that is in scripture, the Journal of Discourses, or, or not scripture, this is like second tier scripture to them. Journal of Discourses, section three, verses 12 and 13, and section 10, verses six and seven. That's for anybody who wants to look it up. Joseph Smith ripped on Martin Harris, but used him as a witness, right? He's a wicked man who broke his oaths to God. He's a liar in his oaths, yet here he is making an oath that the Book of Mormon is true. Joseph Smith also wrote this about Martin Harris. Martin Harris, having boasted to the brethren that he could handle snakes with perfect safety while fooling with a black snake with his bare feet, he received a bite on his left foot. Sound familiar? Snake handling people, weirdos. The fact was communicated to me, and I took occasion to reprove him and to exhort the brethren never to trifle with the promises of God. That's in the Histories of the Church, Volume 2, page 953. And this is, um, again, a Mormon publication. So Martin Harris, it turns out, after he'd been written as a witness of the Golden Place, he left the Mormon Church and claimed that he had just as much proof for the Shakers as he did for the Book of Mormon, which is not a compliment. 
Let's talk about another witness, Oliver Cowdery. He's another one of the actual guys who says he saw the golden plates. It seems he later denied that he saw the plates. In Times and Seasons, volume two, page 482, which is a Mormon publication, it says the following. Um, and it's a complaint like, or prove that Christ is not the Lord because Peter cursed and swore or the book of Mormon, not his word because denied by Oliver. This is very hush hush, right? The church doesn't want to talk about this, but one of the key witnesses, it seems actually went back later and said, no, I wasn't really true. I lied. That's, that's, I mean, this is massive. If, if we found out that Peter, the apostle Peter later recanted and said, no, I didn't really see him alive. I made that up. It would just be devastating to Christianity. Well, Brigham Young, he said the following. Some of the witness, and now Brigham Young, so you guys know, he's a hugely important leader in the Mormon church. He's the second president, and he's the guy who moved them to Utah and started like even more governmental control from uh, Mormonism. Brigham Young said, some of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon who handled the plates and conversed with the angels of God were afterwards left to doubt and disbelieve that they had ever seen an angel. That's in the Journal of Discourses, volume seven, page 164. They admit that their own witnesses recanted later. David Whitner and Oliver Cowdery, two guys, were later kicked out of the Mormon church in 1838 for their, quote, opposition to our beloved brother, Joseph Smith, Jr. Oliver Cowdery renounced the Mormon church and said he was sorry and ashamed of his connection with Mormonism. Then he became a Methodist. And this is from a signed notarized affidavit in the book, The True Origin of the Book of Mormon. So there's other Mormon sources as well. Uh, that's just the three witnesses. That's the three key witnesses of the Mormon church. All three, totally problematic. And then the eight, as far as the eight, these eight people, all eight of them left the church later on when they turned on Joseph Smith Jr. Um, of, of the 11 witnesses, the three and the eight, three were related to Joseph Smith biologically. They were part of his family. And five of them were of the Whitmer fam family. And even then they still all ended up leaving the church. What does that mean? It means that the foundation of the Book of Mormon is built on sand, is what it means. But there's more issues. The Book of Mormon, uh, it talks about early America, right? It talks about things that happened where we're living right now. But there's no archaeology to support it. It talks about massive civilizations, huge battles. And it talks about the Nephites and the Lamanites. Yet there was no civilization from archaeology that we see of Nephites. We know about Mayans and Incans and things like that. But we don't know anything about uh, Nephites or Lamanites. Neither do Native Americans, by the way, right? Like their histories don't have these people either. The Smithsonian and the National Geographic have both issued press releases to say that, that they've found no archaeological support for the Book of Mormon anywhere. This is totally unlike the Bible. You know, your Bible comes with the, that book of maps. We all joke about the book of maps, right? The reason why your Bible has maps is because the Bible is actually talking about real locations in history, right? When it talks about Egypt or it talks about the River Pishon or whatever, it's actually talking about things that we can go back into ancient history and go, oh, there it is. We've found the Hittites. We have found Nineveh, which some people said never existed, right? We've found the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and found out it had five porches on it, just like the gospel of John said, right? The, the little de details that we get. There is not a single map in any book of Mormon because there is no location in any of the book of Mormon in the thousand year history of recounts that we can identify with any kind of certainty. There's only one place the Mormon church has publicly declared. This is where this happened. And that's a hill in New York called the Hill Cumorah owned property owned by the Mormon church where supposedly the Nephites and Lamanites had their final battle and 230,000 people were killed at that location. They used steel. They had all these things, horses and stuff like that, that never existed in the new world at that time. And any digs that have begun on the Hill Cumorah to find archeological evidence have been stopped by the Mormon church and they will not dig there. And all we know is that on the LDS.org, they're like, 
well, we're not sure that this is actually the right location anymore. Um, the thing is that it's just, the Book of Mormon is fabricated history and we can prove it with archeology span and with studies and with anachronisms. It talks about horses they didn't have, steel they didn't have. It quotes the New Testament verbatim, even though it was supposedly written independent of the New Testament. Uh, Joseph Smith said there was no Latin or Greek or anything like that on the Book of Mormon tablets. Yet in the Book of Mormon, it uses phrases like alpha and omega, which <laughs> Joseph Smith forgot was Greek. And um, yeah, so it's just full of issues. But if you tell a Mormon that and show them this, like, why don't they leave the Mormon church? Well, it's one thing for, I mean, who am I? Mike, some jerk that just hates Mormonism. He's just doing this because he's mean, you know, There's, they don't believe you. They've been raised in the Mormon church and they've been, they think Joseph Smith is the most wonderful guy that's ever existed. He's such a godly, wonderful man. How could you pick on him so much, Mike? You know, the Mormon church, look at all the good we're doing. Why don't you leave us alone? Gosh, you know, and so there's like this feeling of being wounded and hurt and being attacked. And that would be true if the things I were saying were not true. Right, exactly. Um, and so it, it takes them to dig on their own. Like all I can do is kind of crack open the door. But if they start digging on their own, they can find this stuff. Well, and that's what you said. You said even like with the Jehovah Witness, like just talking to them, if you can just put one little crack in the dam for them, yeah. like maybe they'll start looking the stuff up and really going, I don't think this is this is yeah. right. Like this doesn't even seem right. So yeah. they also this, this is what I did in my own Christian faith is I went, man, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And I spent... I can't tell you how many hundreds or thousands of hours of thousands at least that I've spent <clears throat> trying to figure out if Christianity was true and how I verify this and validate that. And it strengthened my faith. And I feel the facts are so strongly in support of Christianity. If, if a Mormon goes through the same process, they will definitely leave Mormonism. I just hope that they come to Jesus and don't think that Mormonism being wrong means that Jesus isn't true. You know, that, that, that was, dude, this is just a weird offshoot. Get out of there. Get back to Jesus. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point. Because if when people do leave the Mormon church, the, the, the few that do, a lot of them do become atheists or agnostics. Or, 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 and why is that? Just because they've been so burnt? Yeah, well, I mean, it, I guess part of it is like, why did you leave? Did you leave because you found Mormonism was false? Or did you leave because you found the truth of Christ? Right. And, you know, it's, it's good to find the falsity of Mormonism, but it's even better to find the truth of Christ. Right. So, so yeah, so, uh, I, I saw a statistic. It's a few, three years old or something like that. And it was saying that something like 60 or so percent of Mormons who leave end up becoming some kind of Christian, uh, you know, but there is, there is a portion who to become agnostic or atheist. And there's a lot of distrust. Just imagine if you'd been lied to from cradle. Oh, I know. And, and about, and then you're like, you go to a church and you're like, but how do I know? How do I know that what there's any, you know, and you just start to become, it becomes easier to just push it all away and not think about any of it. Yeah. And so I, I, I get that. I get that. But I say, just yeah. go to the word of God, go to the Bible, read it for yourself. Yeah. Um, talk about the, the book of Abraham. They have the, the books of Abraham. Yes. Okay. So in the um, Mormon um, triad of scripture, other than the Bible, they have the book of Mormon, the doctrine and covenants, and then they have the pearl of great price within that pearl of great price. There's multiple documents. One of them is the book of Abraham. I got to tell you how this happened. Mormons need to know this. Everyone needs to know this. Um, in the book of Abraham, we have a few interesting things. Uh, it's where polytheism is taught very strongly. Uh, it has some very strong racist passages about how the curse of Cain is, is, is related to people with dark skin. <laughs> so I got to do a video about that one of these days. <laughs> anyway, the, here's the, I'll just give it to you. Here's the ironic thing. If, if, if anybody has the curse, the curse of Cain, the mark of Cain, 
It means that if you mess with them, God will just totally mess you up. That's all it really means. Because right. <laughs> God's like, anybody who messes with Cain, I'll get them. So, so like, hey, go ahead. Say I got the mark of Cain. It just means don't mess with me or God will get you. Um, <laughs> that's the irony of it. But the origins of the, of the uh, book of Abraham are really interesting. So Joseph Smith has already got his following, right? <clears throat> and in his following in 1835, they get a hold of these two papyrus scrolls that have Egyptian writing on them. And his followers are like, Joseph, you have the gift of translation. Take a look at these scrolls. Tell us what they mean. And I can imagine, I mean, he's a fraud. So I can imagine the awkwardness of it. It's, oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Ooh, oh, God is showing me what this means. Like, I can imagine the awkward moment where they hand him scrolls and they want him to translate them. Well, documents show that he actually spent a lot of time trying to actually figure out. We actually have his diary where he has notes where he's trying to figure out what, Egypt, what the Egyptian means. And he gets it all butchered. He gets it totally wrong. Um, but the problem was at the time, people didn't know Egyptian. See, we, we, we forget this. Like, this is in the 1800s. And yes, in Europe, they, were just, they had just discovered the Rosetta Stone. They were just figuring out how, how Egyptian worked. And they were beginning to translate it. But not around Joseph Smith. He didn't know this at all. So here he is thinking, no one knows Egyptian. So I could just say whatever I want, right? Well, here's the claims that, that Joseph Smith came up with. He says, well, this scroll, it turns out, is written by Abraham himself. 4,000 years ago. And I'm going to translate it. And it becomes the book of Abraham. And in 1880, it was canonized as official scripture. Now here's what's, here's where the story is so super interesting. It was later lost. Like the manuscript was lost. It was, it was left by his wife in, in uh, his wife had control of it. She donated it to museum. It was then later found. They thought it was destroyed, but it would, they found it. The church authenticated it. They said, yep, that is the right scroll. Joseph Smith had pictures, drawings, showing the scroll and it matches, right? So we know this is the right scroll. So then we can test it because from the time it was lost to the time it was found, guess what we have? A vocabulary of Egyptian. So we have Egyptologists who know Egyptian and they can take what Joseph Smith translated and they can actually say, did he get it right? This is so exciting for Mormons and non-Mormons because either it's true and we should all be Mormon or it's a lie and nobody should. So here's what they found. Um, his actual translation was coming from a text. The papyrus was from the Egyptian book of the dead. That was about rituals they would do for dead bodies. We all know how they had these jars and they pull the brains out through the nose and all these weird things. That's what this was, was, was actually about. Let's put up um, the first image we've got here. This is Joseph Smith's illustration from the book of Abraham. It's still printed in the book of Abraham and it's his drawing and it's very close. Uh, there's, there was some missing pieces and he filled them in with whatever he wanted but it's very close to what actually we find on the papyrus itself. Now go to the next slide and you'll see what he wrote below that image in his book of Abraham. He has explanations. He goes, Oh, the first figure is the angel of the Lord. The second figure is Abraham fastened upon the altar. The next one is the idolatrous priest. Da, 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 da. And he goes and he mentions all these gods. Of course, these gods are wrong. Like Egyptologists say, Joseph Smith saying this Egyptian symbol means this. He's totally, completely wrong. So I'm going to share with you now a quote. This is from LDS.org, the official Mormon church. Here's what they say about the book of Abraham after all this stuff has come out. They say Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree that the characters on the fragment do not match the translation given in the book of Abraham. This is the most clear evidence, along with Genesis 50 verse 33, right. that Joseph Smith was perpetrating a fraud on the Mormon people, and they are the victims of a horrible, horrible and dangerous lie. His book of Abraham 
uh, he went too far, right? And, and the papyrus was found and Egyptologists agree. The contents of the book of Abraham, they come from a book of the dead that dates to like 170 BC, not 4,000 years ago and not by Abraham and not even about the same contents. It's just flaming proof that Mormonism is totally a lie. Getting that to them and helping them understand that that's that's the biggest that's the biggest problem. What helps is the LDS.org quotes because that's their church telling them, yeah, it's not right. Yeah. So that's why I put those quotes up because it's because they don't trust me. Look, it's on your own stuff. Your right. own church recognizes this. Well, and that's that will be one. I'll do two more questions, then we'll take questions. Um, but that was one of my. If you're a Mormon watching this, like, how do you? How can you tell them like this is how you should test what? what you're being taught like yeah. what are some tests they can do yeah um go go look at the joseph smith translation of the bible just look at it for yourself um here's another great thing is just read the bible pretend like you don't know about mormonism and read the new testament and, and find out what you find out about jesus you're going to discover a jesus that's so much greater and so much more wonderful than what you've ever been told and you're going to start to notice wait they use this verse for this but that's totally not what it means and you're going to see that for yourself. Other things you can do is you can uh, research the book of Abraham and find out how they say, well, maybe, maybe there was a longer part of the scroll that got lost. But yet Joseph Smith, he has drawings where he goes, this means that, and we know that's not true. So do the work on your own, research it on your own, and discover the, the true Christ. That's what this is really about. Just because Mormonism works so hard to look good doesn't mean it's true. I mean, Jesus, his complaint about the Pharisees in his day he says, you're whitewashed tombs. He goes, inside, it's spiritually dead, but outside it looks beautiful. That's Mormonism. Mormonism works harder than anyone to have the most beautiful buildings around. Their temples are glorious and they're so gorgeous. And every time I see one, I just think whitewashed tombs. Yeah. It, is, it is outwardly beautiful to men, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, but inwardly full of dead men's bones. And that is exactly the case with Mormonism. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just a matter of, of hope. Yeah, I think that's the way you just have to just get into the word. And the problem is, is that if they've been taught that that the Bible's not translated correctly, like they'll be like, well, how am I going to really know which translation? Because I think one of the questions that came through was, well, hasn't our Bible been translated, you know, not properly? Or so, like, if you, what would you tell? Would you, I wouldn't. I told my Mormon cousin, I'll talk, but we're going to use the like new King James version because I'm sorry. I don't understand the King James. It's too thee, thou, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Languages change so much that, yeah. you know, so yeah. how, what, what translation would you tell them to go to? Well, here's the good news. Pick one. I mean, you're not going to get a different Christianity. It's not like, okay, yes, the translations will render words differently, but if you, you want the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, the RSV, the NRSV, the King James Version, the New King James Version, you want the, the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, or you want, you want even maybe you need a, the Living Bible, or you're going to more paraphrase, literally any of those translations will give you solid Christian doctrine. It's, our doctrine doesn't hang on our translations because the differences in translations aren't the kind of differences that are going to create whole new theology. So. Okay pick any mainstream translation and go with it. Um, that's not the issue. And you can say that there might, what if there's a mistake in one translation, uh, but it's not in another, it won't change your faith. It will change your understanding of that verse, but your, your faith is going to be intact. So we're, we're worried about little issues when we should first focus on the big issues of the big theology issues. Does, does that help at all? It does. It, no, it really does. Because I was thinking if you're a Mormon, you're just like, you're so terrified that, that what you're reading is going to be, is going to be wrong. Yeah. Um, 
the last question I want to ask is, it's just kind of like the Jehovah Witnesses. Like if you, if, if someone's out there that's a Mormon and they're like, okay, I, I just, I realized today that everything I believed is not true. Now I have to walk away from my neighbors, my ward, my, you know, and, and like you said, it's really like, it's this cost of following Jesus. And for them, it will cost them more than it probably costs you and I. So yeah. what does that look like? Like, okay, if I decide I'm going to leave the Mormon church today, what, what is your encouraging words to tell them to do? Because they're terrified. Yes. And a lot of Mormons who've left the church have left so silently and they're still on the rolls. Um, Mormonism says they have over 16 million, you know, members, but they will leave your name on the rolls forever unless you write a letter requesting your name off the rolls. When you write that letter, they will send people to your house to talk to you about it first. So it can be a little bit intimidating and scary to do that. Um, And there's nothing worse than being a former Mormon. It's better to be a bad Mormon than a former Mormon, right? bad Mormons go to level two, former Mormons go to level negative one, right? This is like, you don't want to go there. Right. So, um, so yeah, it, it can cause things like job loss. Uh, the Mormon uh, Mormons tend to uh, hire other Mormons. And right. so it might result in job loss. I've, I've heard stories of that kind of thing. It can result in marital problems. I've heard multiple stories of people being encouraged to divorce their spouse for leaving and speaking against the Mormon church, not just for being a bad Mormon, but for speaking against it, right? If you're going to threaten current members, then, you know, they've been told to, uh, to leave their spouse, which is something you see in Jehovah's Witnesses as well. This is super unbiblical. Uh, Paul's yeah. advice to Christians who are married to non-believers even if that was the situation is that they honor Christ and be the absolute best spouse they can to give glory to God. And then they make the marriage work if at all possible. So yeah, that's the, the, some of the things that go on there. It's a, it's a big social circle. Um, socially it's very tight knit. And so a lot of Mormons, they change their beliefs, but they maintain the label Mormon. Right. And so this is why I don't, I don't treat Mormons like Mormonism. I've been talking about Mormonism most of the time here, but a Mormon you meet may or may not even believe half the stuff I've said. And they may still call themselves Mormon, but they, right. they just believe whatever they believe. So I always approach them like a unique individual. What do you believe? What do you think about this? The church says this, the Mormon church, what do you think about that? And I, I let them be a unique person and deal with them in that fashion as well. That's just a, I think a helpful thing. Don't assume that they know or agree with the Mormon church on everything. You said something too, and one of your things, I'm, I think it was you and, um, you were talking to a Mormon, you were asking him questions like, well, what do you believe about this? And at the end of the conversation, you're like, I don't think you're a Mormon. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, you think you are, but your, your beliefs don't even align with what the church teaches. It was a weird situation. And I mean, God knows, and I don't know. I'm not making a judgment call on him, but I, here's the call I'll make is that his theology was Christian. And I'm, and I'm not, the wool's not over my eyes. Like I know when they use the same word and mean a different thing. So I'm not right. asking about the word. I'm asking about the definition of the word, right? Do you believe there's lots of gods? No, there's only one God. Do you believe Jesus became a God 2000 years ago? No, he's always been God. You're not Mormon. (laughs) You're not a Mormon. But he lived in a city in Utah that was 95, I'm not kidding, 95% LDS. So why do you think he still calls himself Mormon? Like, I don't know. What do you do when you, now he should take up his cross and follow Jesus, of course. But uh, so I'm not saying that I justify a decision to say you're still Mormon and and yet reject all those things. I think you cause problems, yeah. but, uh, but you can see how the situation would make things tough. Yeah, no, it really would. Um, one person uh, wrote in this morning and said this, I've noticed a number of local Latter-day Saints join our online Christian groups, such as our church and our Christian union Zoom meetings. Yeah. He said, is this a new tactic 
to convert Christians to Mormonism or, or how do we tackle that? What is that? Why are they doing that? Um, question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm only guessing because I don't know the heart of those individuals. It's possible that they're questioning their faith and they are looking for someone to help them. It, but it's also possible that this is a tactic. Like, so when I was a kid in Cyprus, the Mormon church would have, uh, was it Friday night or Saturday night? They would have dances. Right. And they would, they would encourage Mormon youth to invite non-Mormons to the dances. And they would look for opportunities to get them in the door, get their foot in the door on Mormon theology. Um, when they come to your door, they used to say, you know, all denominations are abominations before God. But now they say, you're Christian, me too. You believe the Bible, me too. Right. I just have extra. But really, it's not just extra. It's an actual denial of everything you believe as a Christian. So that's deceptive. Um, so yes, the Mormon church is, and this is how they're different than JWs. Okay, the Jehovah's Witnesses have decided we're going to stay super conservative in our beliefs. We're going to just tighten around and sort of isolate. The Mormon church has taken a whole different tactic. And they've said, we'll just be open about all the weird stuff and all, this, all the, we'll talk about the polygamy and we'll talk about all the weird things that go on. Um, and we'll just tell people just believe because you have a testimony, you know, it's true. And it just comes down to faith. So they have a different tactic and their whole goal is to grow the Mormon church, grow the Mormon church. Everything's driven by make the Mormon church look good, to, you know, donate money and tell everyone you donated it. Start a good work and tell everyone about the good work you did. Make the building as beautiful as possible. And yes, go join that group to bring them into our fold. Um, it's, it's very much about just growing the organization. So I would suspect in this group, that's what's happening. I would suspect they're there for that. Now for me, if I have Mormons attending a group, and I think they're not affecting anyone negatively, then I'm just going to let them attend, right? I, I think I am, like my strategy there. If I think they might be affecting people, then we're about to do a whole series on Mormonism. Right, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's get to some, some questions. Um, do you think there is such a thing as a born-again saved Mormon who rejects some of their prophets' bad essential teaching, have a proper understanding of salvation by grace, but remains worshiping at their local ward? Really good um, question. I, I do think so. I think, that, I think that people are messy and life is complicated. So I think that that does happen. It's probably very rare. So I'm not trying to be like, let's just assume that all Mormons are really Christians. Like this is very, that's very unwise. But yeah, I think that, um, <clears throat> that somebody could let's say on their own they're reading the bible and they're discovering and they, they start to think i i just disagree with the church on this or that you know and they start worshiping jesus they reject more and more of the doctrine they're still going out of habit that's a possibility i think the holy spirit will lead them out of that environment right, eventually yeah. i really would expect that to happen but i would rejoice with them uh, in 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 those steps they're taking towards the truth of christ okay um let's see todd writes does a mormon have to testify of the five essentials to be saved I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. And then yeah. he says, please define saved for a Mormon versus a Christian. Yeah. Well, when we say salvation, we, we, we mean the whole kit and caboodle, right? When they say saved, they, I, I'm not sure it's muddy. Like maybe they just mean you're going to get a resurrection and you're going to go somewhere after you okay. die. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get exalted. And exalted is a more technical term that you can assign that to. Maybe there's more there that I just don't know of. But do you have to uh, say those five things? Uh, I imagine, at least in general, yeah, you're, you need to do that to be considered, you know, having your testimony about Mormonism. I right. think that that would be required, I think. Um, Stafford, uh, let's see. Um, 
I'm trying to think of, uh, is it good to mention that the Book of Mormon seems to be written in the early 17th century English, even though it was supposedly translated from Egyptian to 19th century English? Yeah, um, I, I don't know if that'll be super helpful. So, and the reason why is this, um, <clears throat> that's when Joseph Smith translated it and oh. people thought, you know, the King James Version was the favorite translation and they thought he, he made it look like the King James. So the Book of Mormon's translated with these and thou's and it's like, and sometimes it actually hijacks whole chapters from the King James Version, right. puts them in the mouth of somebody else. Um, but I wouldn't focus on that because just it being in a certain genre of English language, that's easy to explain on Mormonism. Um, in fact, my criticisms, even if I talked about, say, the archaeology and maybe the Hill Cumorah, that kind of thing, I might do that. Or the anachronisms like horses and steel and stuff that the Native Americans never had until after Columbus. But what I would, I would actually focus on the book of Abraham. Um, because to me, it is so clear. I would focus on Joseph Smith's addition to Genesis about himself. Yeah, that right there like, just, it's that so moves. clear yeah yeah it's so clear and they can't deny it and it's in the intro you can get the pdf online of joseph smith's translation the intro it says that it was uh the bible translated and corrected by joseph smith under the inspiration of the holy spirit but see and that's why i keep saying god would never do that. he's already given us one inspired book like why would he re-inspire re like he doesn't that's what i'm saying if someone really thought through it they'd be like oh yeah that doesn't even make sense um, yeah, you know what, on that, let me explain something real quick for people, right? So we have the Old and New Testament, and someone could say, well, the New Testament, that's this new inspired book, so why, would I, why, not, why don't I reject that too? Right. But here's the big difference. Two big differences. One, consistency. Okay, the New Testament really is the old fulfilled, and that is huge. The consistency and the integrated nature of the two is massive and a big deal. Also, the, the provable, or, or I should say, evidenced miracles of Jesus, including his resurrection, that support that as well. But also, um, the Old Testament left hanging all this prophecy that must be fulfilled, and Jesus fulfills it. You see it in the old, you see it fulfilled in the new. So the two go together. The old creates expectation for the new. What does the New Testament create expectation for? The return of Christ. Right. Not another prophet who will bring a restored gospel and a whole bunch of new literature, equaling more than the Bible itself. It, it, it creates expectation for the return of Christ. So we're just not expecting more scripture. With right. the old, they were expecting more. With the new, we're expecting Jesus. That's a great point. Um, someone said, uh, Tina wants to know, can you talk about the secret ritual garments in the temple and how they are not biblical? Yeah, there's, oh, this is a whole can of worms. So inside the temple, which is different than churches, we're talking about these 160-odd temples that they have that are massive, beautiful, gorgeous tombs. Have you and, been to one? Um, I've never been inside one. They built one in San Diego a few years back, but I didn't know it was being built at the time or I could have got the tour. Once it's anointed, they won't let you in unless you're more. They rip up so. the carpet and they have to redo it. Yeah. 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 So, um, well, in the temple, they have various rituals that were partially borrowed from Masonic stuff that Joseph Smith yeah, was into was at the time. Question. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> like, but these things have changed over time. So you, you, one of the things that I, uh, reportedly you do because they're secret they're not allowed to talk about it even to each other they're not allowed to talk about what happens in the temple well one of the reasons is because up until sometime in the 2000s you'd go into the temple and apparently you would take all your clothes off put on a thin garment and then someone would come and rub oil all over your body like all over your body like and there's stories from ex-mormons who say yeah it was pretty it was it was you know inappropriate obviously um but there's other things too um you know joseph smith had people uh committing 
I don't make a big deal about this, by the way. I don't think this is effective with Mormons. I don't think it's effective. I think it just puts them on the defense. But let's just say there's a lot of weird stuff that's happened in the temple. I don't care about their garments. I don't care what they wear on their undergarments. I think it's just almost ridiculing to, to, go, to, that, to go that direction. But I'll, I'll just say you can study that on your own. There's all kinds of weird stuff there. I just don't find it effective in reaching Mormons. I think it alienates them. Okay. Um, why do Mormons seem to travel so far off to third world countries and islands and set up churches? Uh, do they think that they are more likely to convert those with less education? I witnessed this in the South Pacific Island of the kingdom of Tonga. They are gathering people in droves, thereby offering them resources and goods. I thought about that too. A lot of, they're very, very giving and they help people and they, they, you know, come along in the coronavirus, they're giving them food. And, and so like, it seems like people, why wouldn't I want to become a Mormon? They're giving me all these really cool things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's good. It just doesn't prove your beliefs are true. I mean, you could be a nice person and, and that I would say is an effective Christianity on Mormonism. All these principles of giving, they come from Jesus, not Joseph Smith, right? And, and that's good. That's a wonderful leftover from true Christianity that exists in Mormonism. You know, our church gives too, but you know what our church does? We don't announce to everybody how much food we've been giving out in our food ministry during coronavirus. Like there, it's not on our website. Here's how many pounds of food and how many families. Right. Here's letters from all those families that you guys can read. Like we just, we just don't publicize it like they do. They, the Mormon church is, has a publicity machine. They actually have a publicity department in this multi-billion dollar corporation that tries to promote the corporation. So yeah, now, but I don't think they isolate their outreach to third world countries or countries that have less education. They do it in all over the place. They do it all over the place. So, I mean, they'll, you've, you've had them at your door probably. I live in uh, LA County and have had them on my door as well. Right. So. Although not in a long time. Not in a long time. Yeah, they know you. You're on, you're on some list, like you're blacklisted from the Jehovah Witnesses too. So. Maybe, uh, one maybe. question uh, in Mormon belief, who's the creator? That's a little complicated. <laughs> who's yeah. the creator? Um, so, in, it, and this is confusing. Mormons don't even know for sure the answer to this question. So it's true that God was not always God, right? God used to be a man. And before he was, he, and he lived either on a planet or near a star called Kolob. That's the theology that they teach. Um, there's other stuff too. Bruce McConkie taught that there was men living on the moon and people living on the sun. And there's other things like that that are part of their teaching in the past. But when you say what came first, um, the universe or some, some God, the answer is, eh, you know, we don't really know how to answer that. They think the universe, matter, space, time, it's all eternal, which was a popular belief in Joseph Smith's time. It's all eternal. We don't think that anymore, even in science, right? They think that it has a beginning point, which proves that God made it, in my opinion. So it's eternal. Um, but what existed back then? And well, Joseph Smith said intelligences. Mormons never talk about the intelligences doctrine because they don't know what it means. Right. He never explained what intelligences were and they don't know either. So intelligences, whatever those are, they were existing. And, right. um, and yeah, yeah. But God, what he did was he reformed matter to, to, to make and then populate this planet. He didn't actually create it out of nothing. He reorganized what was already there. That's, that's how the God of the Bible, according to Mormonism, created. Okay. Oh, Mike, thank you so much. It was one of the, one of the um, questions here was from someone who, I, she must be in a different country, and she said, thanks, Mike, this was awesome. I got to go to sleep, yeah. <laughs> which is probably how you feel right now, too. So. I, I'm told that my voice puts people to sleep, and I think it's a compliment. <laughs> I doubt that. Okay, hey, lay so. your head down and take a nice rest. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if anyone wants to hear more about Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, we'll get these up on your website soon. But you have a bunch of other videos, I think four or something on these things. So if you want yeah. more in-depth, 
BibleTaker.org. Go there. Mike Winger, he's super awesome. Mike, thank you. We will see you in um, another month. We'll do our Catholicism and then Perfect. we'll be done. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fantastic. Oh my gosh, you're awesome. So um, thanks for all of you who joined us and we will see you the end of June. <laughs>